I'd like to start by going back to the parable of the raft that we looked at last night. And to think of it as another, as a, as a metaphorical or imagistic uh, frame for understanding the practice of the four tasks. So if we cast our minds back, the person finds herself standing on a riverbank and in front of her is this wide open expanse of water and no way across. So the first task is to say, yes, this is the situation I'm in now. To embrace that. To recognize that this is where your life is now happening. And to notice how you react to that. To notice whether that makes you frightened, for example. Whether it makes you feel despair. I can never get across this river. It's too much. Notice that. And notice that that's just an instinctive reaction driven by the sort of background conditioning, history, you and your culture and your religion and your family and your society share. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just what happens. If you're on a journey, you have a goal, and then suddenly you reach a river with no bridge or boat. You're going to react in some way. Notice how you react. That's part of the situation too. It's just as much part of the river and the land. It's your reaction to it. Notice that. Embrace that reaction too. But don't get caught up in it. Don't let your fear, in this case, somehow disempower you. Oh, I could never do that. Impossible. It's too difficult. And you withdraw. You return from maybe where you started. You give up, in other words. So you let go. This is the technical language. You let go of those reactions, of that reactivity, of that fear. But that doesn't mean that you somehow tamp it down or pretend it's not happening. You accept it fully. But by not identifying with it, not letting that fear drive how you then think and behave and feel, you are already liberating yourself from it. You're finding a freedom in which you can begin imagining a solution. So you try, as best you can, to settle into a quiet, relatively quiet, non-reactive state of mind. You need that in order to be able to take the next step. In other words, how am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to get across this river? If the mind is churning with worries and anxieties and stuff, you're not going to have the clarity to see your way forward. Once you get that clarity, then 
you can start imagining a way out of the problem. So your vision will lead to imagination, thinking of, ah, you think, maybe I could build a raft. Is there any material around? Not right here, but maybe a bit over there by that little stand of trees. Some wood there, maybe. You start to sort of figure out solutions. And once you've imagined a solution, the next step, of course, is to enact that solution, actually to go about with your body and your hands and your arms and your legs and your feet and actually construct something. In this case, a raft. And once you've constructed it, then utilizing it to actually serve its purpose of getting you to the other shore. And you need to do this with application, with mindfulness, with focus, in order that you can reach your target. But once you get to the other shore, you let go of that solution. You don't need it anymore. You've learnt a lot. It's going to come in handy, no doubt, later on. But right now you can let that go too. And you proceed in your journey. So this maps quite well onto these four tasks. In other words, the, the metaphor of the raft can be understood as a metaphor that describes and helps us, us visualize the practice itself of embracing dukkha, suffering, conflict, letting go of reactivity, the second task, seeing the stopping of reactivity, in other words, sensing and feeling in your body that still open, non-reactive attention, and then proceeding on a path which starts with the vision and then goes into imagination, action, effort, mindfulness, concentration. In other words, the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold Path has to be let go of too, or at least that specific configuration of it that was useful and effective in accomplishing that particular task, getting across the river. Then you start again. This, I think, is quite a beautiful imagistic version of what is otherwise primarily a kind of a, a series of instructions, somewhat abstract. So for the instructions this morning, I want to focus particularly on letting go. Letting go of reactivity. Now, reactivity is, um, for me, a generic term, in other words, a general way of talking about what elsewhere in Buddhism you might read about the defilements, the asavas, the, you know, the corruptions, the three poisons, the three fires, greed, hatred, delusion. Um, 
this is the standard language in traditional Buddhism for what we might think of as reactivity. Reactive patterns of mind that keep coming up, keep rising up into our awareness quite independently of our volition. The person who comes to the bank and feels frightened doesn't choose to feel frightened. That's simply what happens. So reactivity is something that is an entirely naturalistic process. It's built into the structure of our, our brains, our nervous system probably, and then reinforced and further um, amplified by social, religious, family, psychological conditioning. It's the kind of the, the set of um, behaviors that come into force um, when we're confronted particularly with difficulties. We might describe these as uh, thoughts, emotions that are compulsive. We don't choose them, they just happen. They're habitual. In other words, we're, we're very familiar with them. This is our kind of default reactive mode. When I feel fear in facing a difficulty, it's not as though, oh, I've never felt that way before. It's terribly familiar. <laughs> oh, God, here we are again. <laughs> it's repetitive. This is a, another key uh, quality of reactivity, is that it goes round and round in circles. Meditation, as we are doing, is an excellent environment to see this happening. A thought gets hold and we can't get rid of it. It just keeps going round and round and round. It repeats, it repeats, it repeats. It might spin off into some digression, but it'll come back. And the more that we allow that to happen, the more we feed it, the worse it gets, the more debilitating and paralyzing. And we find ourselves sitting here in a meditation with our eyes closed, looking to all extents and purposes like a really still focused spiritual being. But actually, there's kind of chaos going on inside here. My um, Tibetan teacher, Geshe Rabton, used to say, you go into a room full of people meditating and it looks so peaceful and quiet. But if you could look inside their minds, it would be like a boxing match. <laughs> you know, basically two people slugging it out. Uh, so, repetitive. It's also self-indulgent. The, the reactivity tends to be very much preoccupied with me. Me and mine. How, what, how am I going to get out of this? Uh, this is going to be a terrible thing for me. So it's probably rooted in our own instinct for self-preservation and survival. Again, nothing wrong with that. But it may not serve our purposes when we're trying to cross this river. It tends to be colored, reactivity tends to be colored with a kind of anxiety or worry. We don't feel very 
at much at ease with ourselves. There's this nagging, irritated little voice that won't shut up. And also, it sometimes feels uh, like uh, it feels uh, frustrating. We feel frustrated. Frustrated means we're not able to achieve our goal. If we're frustrated, it means we're blocked, we're stopped. And reactivity is often felt as a kind of a an emotion of frustration, which you feel in the body, not the mind so much. The Buddha, in the earliest texts, um, talks of these patterns as fires. Later Buddhism began to, to use the term poison. In other words, these things are kind of toxic. And that has its value too, certainly. But I think fire, once again, is a very powerful metaphor. They are like fire. The Buddha's third discourse was called the Fire Sermon. It's usually translated in English under that title. The fire sermon. The world is burning, he says. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, they're burning. Burning with what? Burning with greed, burning with hatred, burning with confusion. Now the imagery of fire to me suggests very strongly something flaring up. Uh, a fire, when you strike a match, you put it to a piece of tinder, and it flares up. And I think that image um, suggests very strongly that this has to do with reactivity. Reactivity flares up like a fire. Sometimes it's very violent, sometimes it glows for a while, heats up and then turns into a real firestorm. But the imagery of fire, I don't think is chosen uh, just accidentally. It's a very potent image. And when you think about it, Nibbana is the cooling, the dying down of that fire. So fire metaphors, um, again, are very central in this early Buddhist thought. And they do correspond, I feel, very well to, uh, to actual experience. We feel this stuff flaring up. Sometimes it even literally heats us up. We start getting flushing or getting sweaty, particularly with hatred or anger or fear or desire. Heat is often a physically felt element of reactivity. It's hot. I'd like to illustrate this um, by giving you a very concrete example. Um, a few weeks ago, I was giving a weekend in Paris. I was uh, talking about Michel de Montaigne, the French essayist, and reading passages from his essays um, as a way of uncovering the Dharma that is buried in them. It's actually not buried, it's quite visible, but you need to read Montaigne with Buddhist eyes to see it. Uh, and I'd spend the weekend doing all of this in French, citing Montaigne's 
middle French, like Shakespeare's English. Um, and it was great fun, I enjoyed it, but it was hard work. Uh, there was no translation, just me speaking bad French. And at the end of the uh, weekend, I went down the road to Gare Montparnasse uh, to get my train back to Bordeaux. Another factor to play here is that this was a period not uncommon in France where there was a big strike going on in the trains. So the ticket I had didn't really quite work anymore because the train was cancelled, so I got another ticket. And I got a first-class uh, ticket for a very good deal, or Martine probably organised that. In any case, I had this nice first-class ticket, went into the train, and the first-class carriage that I had been... Actually, it wasn't the one I was assigned. It was an additional one that added on. But I was able to go into it. A first-class carriage, only me in it. I sat myself down by a window on the left. You know, you have one row of single seats and then two double seats running down the other side. Lovely view out onto the window. I could enjoy now two hours of whizzing silently down to Bordeaux, enjoying the French landscape and the countryside, uh, and really just chilling from my well-earned, uh, from my well-earned uh, labours. So the train started moving, and that's the sign that nobody else is going to get on. It's a non-stop all the way, Paris, Bordeaux. Um, this was wonderful. About ten minutes later, um, a very large woman, dragging suitcases, uh, came into this carriage. You know, great. Except she chose to sit right next to me. <laughs> she could have had any other seat in the, uh, in the carriage, but no, she sat across the aisle right there next to me. Then she started unpacking all her stuff. And <laughs> this included, you know, bags full of uh, fast food, a uh, big bottle of Coca-Cola, lots of these crisp sort of, these you know, I don't eat these things, but Doritos and potato chips and stuff in these crinkly plastic bags that make a hell of a lot of noise. <laughs> so she was sitting there. Um, uh, you know, you know, she started sort of eating chips and drinking Coke and um, got her phone out, which again wasn't a very good sign. Uh, and I started reacting. Um, rather than this wise Buddhist teacher who's been meditating for all these years, this is just more, you know, just reality rising, passing away. No, I got very reactive. And I... Uh, and again, I could feel this both uh, as a kind of I fr frustration. I was not getting what I wanted to have a nice quiet journey down to Bordeaux. Not at all. So frustration. And then I found my mind started, you know, going into overdrive with, I bet she's not a first class passenger, really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it'll be great, you know, when the conductor comes, she'll be moved back to where she belongs. Now, I, I'm not proud of these thoughts, and I didn't choose to think them. They happen by themselves. And 
I was aware of this going on. I was, it was actually, I found it quite interesting to observe myself reacting here. Um, so, you know, I was, I was going through these, exposing all of my prejudices about for a typical British thing, class, you see. Um, and probably all sorts of negative thoughts about large women who probably eat too much junk food. All that stuff, too. All sorts of terrible things going on in my mind. Um, so, being a diligent practitioner, I thought, okay, let's, you know, how am I going to deal with this? I started practicing metta. Um, may you be happy. May you be free of suffering. May you be at peace. And I did this for a few times. It didn't actually make much difference. <laughs> <laughs> I could feel somehow a little bit better about the situation. But just reciting those phrases uh, didn't really make great inroads into my reactivity. So I started reflecting and thinking, she's probably got a really difficult life. She's probably got you know, noisy kids and maybe an abusive husband and blah, 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 blah. Um, try to sort of put myself into her situation and not just treat her as somebody who's interfering with my well-being. Try to get out of my own egotistic way of thinking. That helped a bit. But then, fortunately, the conductor, the ticket collector came. And I thought, oh good, now the problem will be solved. So the ticket collector took my ticket, punch, and then took the ticket of the other woman, who was perfectly entitled to be there. And then they started having this very cheerful, chatty conversation. <laughs> the ticket collector wasn't reacting at all. Um, I could see that this was basically my problem. Um, didn't help, of course, because I felt I wasn't being somehow supported or vindicated. Um, so the, the prospect of spending two hours in this situation um, was becoming more and more difficult to accept. But being a good British person and perhaps an overly conscientious Buddhist, I thought, I don't want to get up and go somewhere else because then she'll feel offended. <laughs> I don't want to you know, make her maybe you know, feel bad about herself or anything by anything I do. And, I, and sincerely, I feel bad to do that kind of thing. But in the end... Um, I made a pretense of needing a bottle of water, and so I got up and went to the cafe place. And when I came back, I sat at the far end of the carriage, and I was perfectly fine. And she stayed where she was, eating her crisps and drinking her Coca-Cola, and it was fine. But I was also aware, as all this was going on, this is a good example. I could use this in a teaching on a retreat. So here we are. Uh, <laughs> and um, what I think, what I find helpful about this example, and it's trivial in a way, our life is full of these kinds of moments, really. But I think it, to get a grip on what reactivity is about, it's useful to give an utterly concrete example like this one. I'm sure we all have stories in our lives where you know, similar things have happened to us. How do, you know, it was basically a, a, 
a riverbank situation. I've come across, I've met an obstacle that I've somehow got to work with and hopefully resolve. And my solution was perhaps a reasonably good one in the end. And the whole episode probably took no more than 10 or 15 minutes to work itself out. But what I'd like us to do today uh, as we're meditating is to uh, identify within ourselves these reactive patterns, this reactivity. To stop thinking of it in the abstract, greed, hatred, delusion. That's broadly speaking the frame. Most of our reactivity will either be about wanting to get something or wanting to try to get rid of something or it will simply be about uh, confusion which is, in this sense, basically a, a reactive uh, opinions and comments and ideas and stories. Um, so reactivity is not just about emotions, you know, desire or hatred or fear. Reactivity is also about opinion. And this, I think, came very clearly in the story of the lady on the train. Uh, much of my reactivity was these these little sentences, you know, she's not really a first-class passenger, that kind of nonsense, that comes unbidden. But it's a very good example of the third kind of reactivity. It's not about hatred, it's not about desire, it's simply about the story I tell myself to feel justified in my feelings. And we hold all kinds of opinions. And often we don't notice them unless they're challenged. Uh, we live, we go, go through life perfectly fine. We hang out with people who share our opinions, uh, so we don't ever really have an issue with them. But sometimes we meet situations where, um, you know, someone tells us something or we hear something that immediately makes us feel opinionated. That can't be true. Nonsense. Bullshit, we say. That's the reactivity of opinion. And remember that uh, for the Buddha, what often lies at the root of so much of our suffering is our attachment to views and opinions. In other words, we're locked into these uh, repetitive snippets of opinion that keep reciting, repeating, and playing themselves out in our heads. So as we're sitting today, notice how we're reacting. And I'd say actually to give you know, considerable attention to reacting in our thoughts, reacting in our mental uh, stories, our, our little commentary, monologue that's constantly being triggered. And the practice is to let go of that. It doesn't mean to somehow try to switch it off or stop it, because that's probably not going to happen, at least in the short term. We have to learn to live with this stuff. And this stuff is basically the legacy of our past, our history, our, our biology, our whole survival strategies. If we don't act on these 
reactive feelings and thoughts, it's going to make them die down, that's for sure. Uh, by constantly reacting, we're actually fueling or giving them an additional charge that just makes them more pronounced and we get more worked up about all this stuff in our heads. But by not reacting to them, but just allowing them to be part of our field of awareness, just patterns of mind, thoughts, emotions that come and go, we can be with them with a quiet, attentive repose, even when they're churning away. So at my better moments in the lady on the train story, I could actually see myself doing all of this. It doesn't mean that I was in a blissful nirvanic state, but I was sufficiently detached to be able to see what was going on. And that's crucial. That's where the meditation, in a sense, comes into play in ordinary life, is that we get more used to this attentive, quiet space within us that is just the observer, the witness to what's happening. And we train and cultivate that as we sit and we walk and we practice here in silence. And we're really training ourselves uh, to, in a way, get through our lives with greater clarity, uh, not losing the plot so easily, um, having a constant point of reference to which we can return. This is, I think, how meditation, mindfulness, translate into actual experiences that over time change our whole way of responding, of being in the world with others, with ourselves. So that's all I want to say. Continue with whatever form of practice you find is working for you on this retreat today. But try to keep in mind this idea of letting go of reactivity. And there are two things to pay attention to. First of all, what is reactivity for me, not what does it mean in Buddhist psychology. How does it actually manifest? What does it feel like in the body as much as in the mind, as an emotion as much as a thought? What does it feel like? And how am I dealing with it? Do I have sufficient stillness and clarity just to let it rise and pass away? Or is it actually hooking me? As the Buddha says, it's like a, a fish hook, Mara's fish hooks or traps that lock in and keep us basically in a state of stuckness, of frustration, of repetitive, habitual, compulsive self-indulgence. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.